we go back to the book of Nehemiah tonight, and we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 6. As we have made our way through the first, really, half of this book almost, and observe there the character of Nehemiah's leadership. And we have observed, you know, overall, one of the the biggest things I hope you take away from this is Nehemiah was a man who trusted in the Lord completely, but then dedicated his life fully to doing the work of God. He, He truly walked that line of trust in the Lord with everything he had and giving God 100% as well. And that's, that's where we need to be in our lives and our walks with, with Jesus Christ is that we give, we, we depend on God for everything and trust him for everything. At the same time, we give him all that we are as well. In Nehemiah chapter 6, we see the next really Hardship and difficulty that Nehemiah faces as he faces some personal attacks on his leadership. Let's consider the chapter together tonight. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates. Then Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come. Let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Samballot sent his servants to me as before, the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall, that you may be their king. And you have appointed, also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you, have, as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they were trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will be not done, or it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, Should a man such as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sembalat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report." And they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sambalat, according to to these their works, and the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul, in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it. All the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes. 
they perceived that this work was done by our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. And the letters of Tobiah came to them, for many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, who is in his son Jehoanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Micaiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobias sent letters to frighten me. And so we see here tonight that life in the spotlight isn't always fun. The captain of the sports team enjoys incredible praise as the championship banners are raised but yet also endures many an accusation from outraged fans during losing seasons. A parent relishes the joys of children growing up, all while persevering at the same time the crushing weight of things that go on in their life, such as job transfers, bills, and the correction of the sin nature of those same children. With great opportunity and with great joys also comes the potential for very, for very personal sorrow and unfounded attacks. And this is the life of Nehemiah here in chapter 6. He's led the Jews through an unprecedented rebuilding campaign in the city of Jerusalem. He, with God's help, has seen incredible victories won, and he's navigated a magnanimous external and internal threats. And yet, following what, what surely must be the joy of the people doing right once again... He comes under another attack to deal with. And this time, the attack is extremely personal. And what we see in Nehemiah chapter 6 is that a leader's character is rebuilt or is built, refined, and exemplified in his godly handling of personal attacks. Nehemiah in this chapter weathers a lot of storms and a lot of things that, that go on and, and very, again, very personally levied against him. But the character of leadership, if we're going to make an, have an influence and have a, make an impact for the cause of, of God, we're going to need to be leaders. Our character is refined in these moments, in, in if we will handle them in a godly way. Just as we said last time, that, that a project, you know, such as the rebuilding of the wall, it's, it, the success of that project is not defined by the absence of problems. Remember how we said that last week? But it's defined in how we handle those problems. Just so here, a, a, character, a, a leader's character isn't defined by the fact that there aren't any issues that come up, but, but how does he handle those things? And here we see how Nehemiah handles these things in a godly way. So what does Nehemiah run into here tonight? Well, in verses 1 through 4, he runs into the attack of deception. There's an intriguing appeal that comes to Nehemiah here in these first few verses. And someone has once said that followers of God are either in the midst of a trial, coming out of a trial, or about to enter a trial. And in the case of Nehemiah's wall-rebuilding project, that seems to be the that seems to happen time and again. He seems to be constantly dealing with these attacks. I mean, we read, we read chapter 3, and chapter 3 is an amazing study of all of these people, all of these names that are engaged in rebuilding the wall. And you kind of get all pumped up, right? Like, this is great, this is awesome. And then you open chapter 4, and you meet all these people who are opposed to rebuilding the wall. 
And, and as you go through the chapter, you kind of get excited again, right? You're, this is great, awesome. They're, they're depending on God, and they're repelling these things. And then you turn to page chapter 5. And what do you find there? You find the people disobeying God and oppressing one another. And, and then you get to the end of chapter 5, and again, you, you get excited. And it's, well, we should because they handle it again in a godly way. And then you open chapter 6, and here is more of the same. Leadership comes with an incredible weight of testing and scrutiny. Those in leadership will always bear greater burdens and the brunt of the attacks. From, from families to churches, from workplaces to school boards, and everywhere in between, if you are in leadership, you will always have more to deal with. It's just the nature of being a leader. Now that shouldn't frighten us away from wanting to lead for God. I don't tell you that. Say, whoa, I just don't want to ever do that. No, it's, we need to go into it informed. We need to understand that that's the nature of the beast. If we lead for God, we will face hard things. What did Paul say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3? He said that all who would live, lead godly lives or live godly lives would suffer persecution. Does that mean we shouldn't lead godly lives? No, Paul's just saying, heads up, this is what's coming. This is the natural consequence of being a follower of Christ. So too here, the natural consequence of being a leader is we will face things or bear greater burdens. Nehemiah had faced opposition from without that was attacking the work. He had faced down internal issues that threatened to tear the people apart. And now he faces personal attacks against himself. Why? If the enemy could take down the leader, the work can be stopped. Now, typically, the attack is what? We often say when we think about this that, that a work or a, or a team, okay, so to speak, is only as strong as its weakest link, usually, is what we say, right? Yeah. And they went after the weakest link. They went after the people who had, once been, who had once been discouraged. And what happened? They stood strong and trusted in the Lord. And they went after, or, or then, and then Satan and his attacks went after the people again through the internal issues. And they stood strong. So where do they have to go? To the leader. And sometimes that's, that's not always a bad thing to attack because sometimes that happens. The leader goes down and everyone else goes down with him. Nehemiah, the godly governor, was holding the reins in Jerusalem. He was leading the people forward for the Lord. And as the work on the walls draws to a close, we again see these attacks. And we see our three friends show up again here in verse 1. Now it happened when Samballot, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I rebuilt the wall, and there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, and the others who are there are troubled by that project's near-completed state. But that little phrase in verse 1, that's in parentheses, has to be noted. The project is almost done. There's still work that has to be done. Because what good 
is a city surrounded by walls if you have no gates to keep people out. They wish then that Nehemiah would come out to them and meet them in the villages in the plain of Ono. The plain of Ono is about 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and it's not very far from what is now modern-day Tel Aviv in Israel. It was also then approximately an equidistant location for all of these leaders who would be involved. And as we look at this, and we look at this invitation for Nehemiah to come out there, and without seeing what Nehemiah says and what we know to be the truth, I mean, just think of it from the perspective of receiving that message. One would be very tempted to think that this is some type of concession meeting, right? That this is, and this is kind of a sore subject where I'm from, okay? But this is the, the Appomattox Courthouse, okay? That's the end of the, the War of Northern Aggression, okay? That's sometimes called the Civil War. This is that opportunity for people to kind of get things made right, right? And Nehemiah, I mean, maybe that's something, you know, that, that, that crossed his mind at first, or others. Hey, we're going to bury the hatchet, we're going to lay aside our differences. I mean, after all, when the walls were completed, wouldn't these people have to recognize Jerusalem as their reestablished neighbors in the Persian Empire? Wouldn't they, wouldn't they have to come to grips and come to terms with the fact that these people were back and that they need some better relations? But Nehemiah doesn't see these motives here. He's, he's constantly on alert, as he has been from the very beginning. And the words that were spoken in the first encounter between Samballot and, and Tobiah and Geshem, they still carry weight here between that first reaction. Let me point you back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. But when Samballot the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, They laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah, from the very beginning, recognized this plot for what it was. It was an enticement to draw him away from a still not completed work and take him out. He said at the end of verse 2, but they, they thought to do me harm. And so from verse 1, Nehemiah calls them what they are. Nehemiah says there, I want you to, I want you to look back there with me. Samballot, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and he says, and the rest of our, and what's that word he uses? Enemies. Not conceding opponents, not now friends, but outright enemies. This is who they are. And as I just love, I was reading a commentary this week, and one author said, said it this way, that he could envision Nehemiah, it's almost as Nehemiah could envision the following being sent back to Jerusalem. We are very sorry to have to inform you, but on his way to Ono, Governor Nehemiah met with an unfortunate accident. His chariot collided with a rock and somersaulted several hundred feet over a ravine into the valley below. Despite every effort to save him, we have to report to you that he is dead. Please accept our sincerest apologies. You know, it's almost like 
you know, it's kind of a, a, a goofy way to think of it, but it's almost like that's what he can envision happening. Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and Geshem had never had the good of the Jews in mind, and they certainly weren't about to start now. And so, Nehemiah outright, outrightly refuses to go with them. And we see here that direct refusal. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, so I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Nehemiah's response to the request is direct and courteous, that he would not leave the work that was not finished and come and meet with them. Now what's interesting here, what does Nehemiah not do? He doesn't doesn't call them out. You notice that? He doesn't say, you know, you low down, no good, yellow belly. You, 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 I know you're going to kill me, so I'm not going to come. Right? He just says, what? I, I got too much going on. I, I have a great work I need to be doing here. I'm not going to come meet with you. He doesn't see any reason to incense them any further than they already are. Instead, he just simply tells them, I'm too busy. That I cannot leave the work and come meet with them. You understand that sometimes in leadership, you have to learn when to say no. You have to learn when to, when to say no to the things that are, well, number one, that are wrong, right? That are distracting, or sometimes maybe that's just not what's best. You have to identify what is primary and stick to it. I, and a word that, or a phrase that's commonly used in our world today is you have to identify what's on mission, that's what's on mission here, and this is what we're going to do. Nehemiah leaving the work and getting himself killed, that's not on mission, okay? That's not what what's needs to happen. He was vital but to the, to the rebuild and the finishing touches, so he reasons with them that he cannot leave the work. Therefore, he's not going to go. Nehemiah has this amazing ability to recognize that, yes, the work is almost done, but it's not complete yet. And he recognizes that, that though they've won great battles, there are still things that need to be done. And he's recognizing that God has called him to this great work. He uses that here. I am doing a great work. Why was Nehemiah's work great? Was Nehemiah's work great because Nehemiah was there? Was Nehemiah's work great because the king had funded the project? Nehemiah's work was not great for any human reason. Nehemiah's work was great because his work extolled the glory of God. He was part of restoring God's glory to his people. And he was consumed with that glory. And you and I, we can say that if we are doing the work of God, it is a great work, not because of us, because of who he is. And the response um, to Nehemiah's refusal to come down is a very telling response. You know, if, if they really wanted peace, if they really wanted to bury the hatchet, if they really want to make things right, then what are they going to do when Nehemiah says, I'm not coming? They're going to go to him, right? Okay, you know, we'll come to Jerusalem and we'll... No, 
What do they do instead? They continue to pepper him four different times with, hey, we need you to come. We need you to come. We need you to come. And Nehemiah gave the same answer every time. You want me to go to Ono? Oh, no, I'm not going, right? You knew I was going to say it, right? And surely that solidified any suspicions that he had. He doesn't waver. He doesn't get worn down. He holds firm in his answer, and, and he rebuffs those invitations every time. And so with the first attack denied, the enemy begins to regroup with their next plan. And so now they, don't, they move from attack of deception, right? That they, they tried to lure him out, and he wasn't going to give in to it. And they move into an attack of defamation on Nehemiah. And it comes in the form of a letter full of lies. The fifth time the messengers show up, the stakes have been considerably raised. Because no longer is the message sent to Nehemiah. They now want everyone to know what they have to say. If you can use a modern term, this is playing political hardball. Typically... When you sent a letter in this time, you would seal the letter. And when the the letter got there, that person who it was intended for would open the seal and read the letter. But if you look in verse 5, what kind of letter did they send? An open letter. You know what that meant? That meant this guy was charged with taking the letter... And between the time he left the destination, you know, the the origin, to the point he got to the destination, he was to stop and read that letter. So it's not inconceivable to say that this letter had been read dozens of times before Nehemiah even heard the letter for the first time. That he had stopped in these villages and in these towns and these strategic areas, and he had read this to all these other people that would listen. The insidious accusations that were within it were penned then with the intention of slandering Nehemiah. And this tactic has similarities to the one that was used in Ezra's time to halt the work, where, the, where the, they had started the rumors there to, that the people were going to rebel and the king had come down on them and, and halted the work, the rebuilding of the walls. And so there, here they, they start the rumors that the people planned to rebel, and that Nehemiah was going to set himself up as a king. In fact, they said, and you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. And they gave this guy a lot of credit, right? Hey, you... You're going to rebuild the wall. You're going to get a king. You're going to get some prophets together. It's going to tell you that you're supposed to be the king. And they postured that with the wall in place, which, by the way, that whole rebuilding project had been funded by the Persian Empire, right? So this this government-funded program, they're posturing. They're going to use that to stand up against the government. They're going to use that wall against them. And it says here, now these matters will be reported to the king. So what are these guys going to do? Well, hey, listen, if you don't come meet with us, we're going to tell him, right? We're going to make sure he finds out, that he, he hears all these things. 
If you don't acquiesce to what we want, well, things are, are definitely ratcheting up a notch. No longer is this just a personal, you know, hey, we're trying to deceive you. But these are lies that are told to defame the character of Nehemiah and possibly incite the king against them. More than that, if the enemy can gain but just a few followers amongst the Jews, then you can have insurrection who would stand up against Nehemiah. These things were, it says here at the beginning of the letter, reported among the nations. Why? Why were these things reported among the nations? Who made sure that happened? These guys did. And perhaps there is a twisting of prophecy that plays in here. Several commentators have observed that as the people were going back into Israel, into Judah, and in Jerusalem, there were prophets again. That there were prophecies going forth once again. And you know what they were prophesying about? They were prophesying about a king. You know what king they were prophesying about? The Messiah. And so perhaps some have, have postured that, and guessed that, postulated that, that this is something that they were taking and twisting. I mean, certainly when Jesus came, these prophecies of the Messiah were still being misunderstood and still being applied way too early. Remember how many people misunderstood who Jesus was and why he came? But there had been no cause from Nehemiah to make these accusations. But that's the thing. The enemy does not play fair. He plays fast and loose. He doesn't play by the rules. He preys on the sinfulness of men. You know what are some of those dangerous statements in any work of God, any family? It's been reported, hey, you know, people are saying things. You know, what I heard was, these are all statements that stir up evil sentiments, isn't it? I mean, you look in any situation where, where things begin to break apart, and of course in our context we usually think of the local church. These kind of statements oftentimes are not followed by anything good. Now, how many times have these hurtful words been heard even in churches today? And so many a spiritual leader has been driven into a bad position because of the untruths that come from that. Does that mean that we're never ever going to hear bad things about leaders? Does that mean we're never ever going to hear things that may even be true about leaders? No, of course not. But there's a right way to address those things. There's a right way to go and get the answers. And so faced with this, Nehemiah has to respond, and he, I love the way he just responds in kind with an honest denial. What is the greatest remedy for lies? It is truth. It is always truth. And Nehemiah makes sure that the truth will out here. Now it doesn't tell us how these things were disseminated, I think it's a logical conclusion that he sent 
some sort of open reply back on the same route. You know, that, that you know, okay, you, remember the way you came? You go back that way, and this is what you say. Very short and very sweet. No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. Short, sweet, to the point, right? The truth is often, by the way, very short and sweet. It is the lies that get all convoluted. And if you are doing right, it doesn't take much to explain yourself. Nehemiah flatly tells where these things come from. They are inventions of the enemy. Why? To frighten the Jews into leaving the job unfinished once again. To get them to look around and weaken their hands and not finish the work, even though they were all so close. And as Nehemiah makes this response, we see once again his strength. At the end of verse 9, very candidly, very pointedly, what does Nehemiah say? Oh God, strengthen my hands. As long as Nehemiah lived in a way that pleased God, he could be assured of God's help and his strength to do these things. If you live in a way that honors God, you will have God's help. Every time. He had not set out to do anything contrary to what God had called him to do. Go back to the very beginning of the story of Nehemiah. He had undertaken his mission in a way that pleased the Lord. Remember how dependent Nehemiah was, praying for God to give him the ability to lead this project, and asking God for those things, and asking God for his leadership, and waiting on God's answer, and then carrying out his mission in a way that respected the authority that was placed over him, being prepared to give the answers that would be asked of him, And so he's not going to stop now. He's going to live in the light. He's going to trust God for his strength. Because God's word required his utmost submission, not the false words of an enemy. And it was there he could find refuge. Sometimes we hear things against us, against what we're doing, against maybe just even the broader scope of followers of Christ. We need not fear what the enemy says. We need only trust what God says. Like the psalmist records in Psalm 31, verses 18 through 20, let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you. But you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. There is a refuge from the lies of men, and it is in the truth of God. And so, foiled again, the enemy now prepares the third salvo. And in verses 10 through 14, we see an attack of discredit that is launched against Nehemiah. And this time, 
It doesn't come from a messenger of these enemies. But it comes from what we seem to deduce here as a trusted source. For in verse 10, it says, Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of, of Mehedabel. And we find out who was a secret informer. This time, the attack looks different. For it comes from someone with whom Nehemiah seems to have familiarity. Nehemiah, before, has rebuffed, right? He has said, I'm not, I'm not coming out there. I'm not going to come out there and meet with you. I know what's going to happen. But, but for some reason, you know, he trusts Shemaiah. He comes to his home, although Shemaiah is confined to that house. Really, um, the f- first part of verse 10 is better translated like this. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home. And we don't really understand and know why he's confined there. Maybe he had taken a vow, or he was in ill health, or perhaps it's part of the ruse that he's undertaking that he won't come out of his home. But whatever the event is, it seems that he is sent for Nehemiah, and Nehemiah seems to know who he is, and he comes to his home. And here, Shemaiah warns Nehemiah of imminent danger. In verse 10, it says, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. In the original Hebrew, um, verse 10, that part of verse 10, is really poetic, and it's what we often refer to as an oracle. And so, what, really what's going on, no doubt here, is, is that this enticement to Nehemiah, this deception, is dressed up to look like some type of prophecy from the Lord. That's what an oracle often was. And Shemaiah feigns concern for Nehemiah's safety during an impending assassination attempt. Hey, there's some men, these guys, they're going to come and try and wipe you out. They're going to try to take you out right here in Jerusalem. Now, is that a believable believable outcome? Is that a believable threat? Well, absolutely. I mean, these guys have have been very brash and bold in their their, uh, opposition. And so now, what does he do? Well, he says, hey, let's go to the temple that we may be safe and we may be guarded from this plot. But however, Nehemiah has here a a response because of the twisted words that he hears. Nehemiah says in verse 11, And I said, Should such a man as I flee? First of all, because of his character, Nehemiah is not going to do any such thing. Nehemiah has stood before the people as their example. He's not going to back down and run away now. If the plot was indeed genuine, he would face it head on as he always did with the help of God. He was a man of godly action. He was a man who would face people who had been trying to kill him and the people already. But really what's the biggest problem here and why he was sure this was a ruse was because of the advice that he was given. Nehemiah says, and who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life, I will not go in. 
You see, the problem was that this so-called oracle called on Nehemiah to do something that was against the law of God. Nehemiah was a layman. He, He wasn't a priest. He wasn't one who had been ordained to work in the house of God and enter the temple. Numbers 18.7 says, Therefore, you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Nehemiah was being called on to enter a place that God said he could not enter. Therefore, if he did so, would be disobeying God and discrediting himself. No matter what problem you face, disobeying God is never the answer. Plain and simple. No matter what problem you find yourself in, going against the word of God isn't going to help you solve the problem. And here, Nehemiah calls out the plot. He says he had perceived that God had not sent him at all. But he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him, which, by the way, is quite ironic. Because what did they accuse Nehemiah of doing in that attack of defamation? That he had hired out prophets to declare him to be the king. You see, the enemy's going to accuse you of things they're not, they're not, it's not above doing itself. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in, a way and, act in this way in sin. So they may have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. If Nehemiah could be lured out to be killed or made to kowtow to rumors, then perhaps he would falter in the ways of God. He couldn't be killed. He he wouldn't bow down to what they said. He wouldn't, you know, leave the work. He wouldn't give in. Well, maybe we we can get him here. This sounds a lot, by the way, of uh, somebody who lived previously in the kingdom. His name was Daniel. Remember that story in Daniel chapter 6? And this would be equally problematic for Nehemiah. When leaders fail to uphold God's ways, their leadership falters. Every time. Now, it may not all come at once. It might not come right away, but it happens. Let's illustrate this with someone else in the Bible. Take Moses and Aaron. Now, Aaron was the mouthpiece, right? That that God would speak to Moses and Aaron would speak to the people. And Moses and Aaron, for many, many years, have been leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. And one day, they get to this place and they have no water. And you know the Israelites. They were always well-mannered, and they reasoned things and thought them through, right? Yeah. I always call them the whiny Israelites, right? And they say things like, Moses! Moses, we have no water! That's how I imagine it went. Maybe it's just because I have little kids. And when Moses and Aaron go to God, they say, God, what are we going to do with these people? They're ready to stone us. God says to go and what? Speak to the rock. And Moses and Aaron, 
and I, you, can, you can read it, you can get the gist in the text, okay? I don't think you have to make a hop, skip, and a jump to get to this. They are frustrated with those people. I mean, wouldn't you be? But frustration is never right, never a cause to do wrong. And they walk out there, and they say, look now, you rebels, shall we bring water from this rock for you? And what do they do? They strike the rock. Now, does God miraculously still provide water? Did Moses and Aaron obey God? No. A positive outcome does not always guarantee that you did what was right. And the fruit and the truth will out. Moses and Aaron exalted themselves into the position of God. We will bring the water out. They could strike that rock all day. They're not going to get any water out of that unless God brings it. And they appropriated the glory of God, and for that they paid a steep price. What happened to Moses and Aaron? They did not enter the promised land. Nehemiah knew God's law, and he knew that he dare not enter the temple in such a manner. And if he did, if God didn't kill him, the enemy would have a reproach against him. So therefore, he called out the plot, and in the wisdom of God, avoided disaster once again. And as this section of personal attacks closes, I want us to see the prayer that Nehemiah lifts up here to God once again. He says in verse 14, My God, Remember Tobiah and Sambalat according to these their works, and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. Very interesting. We learn about other prophets who were involved in this, by the way. And so we have here what we may refer to again as an imprecatory prayer against the enemies. What does he ask God to do? He asks God to remember the works of those who sought to do him harm and to remember the works of those who had acted against God's people. Nehemiah was God's man on God's mission. And again, I read some very interesting things in different commentators this week. You know, some question Nehemiah's motives here. And can we 100% say that in this verse, in verse 14, that Nehemiah's heart was 100% right with God in that prayer? Well, perhaps not. But can we also, by the same token, 100% say that prayer was not prayed in a right spirit? Definitely not. And I really am one who leans towards, I think Nehemiah is is completely right with God in this prayer. He's asking God to, to judge sin. Because Nehemiah had a habit over and over and over again of leaving things, leaving God's things with God and letting him settle it. And doing the things that he's supposed to do. You and I cannot be responsible for the actions and judgment of others. We can only be responsible for ourselves and pray for God to handle the rest. And listen, personal attacks aren't any fun. A questioning of character, a questioning of our motives, outright lies, these are enough to keep a person up at night. Think about even some of the things that may race through Nehemiah's head in a situation like this. What if, 
What if those rumors have gotten back to the king? What if the people begin to buy into the lies that Nehemiah is going to make himself a king? What if, what if, what if, what if? You know what the what ifs do? They remove God. They remove the sovereignty of God. They remove his control over all situations. They remove my rest and peace that I should find in God. I'm not saying they're not, you know, it's, oh, it's all fun. You know, I love people taking pot shots. But we can truly say, God, I'm just going to leave this with you. I'm going to do the things that you've called me to do. I'm going to let you handle the rest. If you lead for God and, and you haven't been there yet where you've been on the receiving end of something like this, undoubtedly you'll find yourself there one day. Because we, we serve a God who is great and mighty, but we have an enemy who is powerful as well. Not all powerful, but he is powerful. And you need a relationship with God that's willing to let God handle the details while you rest in him. And I'll just say that one of the reasons that I strongly believe Nehemiah's heart is right here, he doesn't say something like, and let me do it, right? God, will you take care of him? And I like to be the guy who twists the knife in, right? Um, that's not leaving God's things in God's hands. That's asking for me to have a personal vengeance campaign. As these latest attacks draw to a close, we see the annulment of the direct attacks that happens here at the end of the chapter. There's going to be no more opposition to rebuilding the wall because the wall's coming to a close. But that doesn't mean the attacks are going to stop, but this part of it is closing. So lastly, in verses 15 through 19, we see, first of all, the discouraged enemies. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. 52 days, and the walls are rebuilt. Nehemiah had learned about this problem of the walls being broken down and the gates being burned with fire in November or December of the previous year. And now what we would know is the following September, the major rebuilding work was done. I mean, then less than a year later, the people have done an amazing thing. Nehemiah had led a great work. But ultimately, who was it that had given the people the victory? It was God. And that scene here where it says in the next verse, and it happened when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own ways, in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. That victory was especially felt by the enemies of the Jews. See, what had happened here had been a reversal. This, this almost mirrors, again, another story uh, in, in Scripture, in the story of Esther. And if you, if you get to the end of Esther and you read, um, I believe it's chapter, maybe chapter 9, I think, maybe chapter 8. And it says that, that when these things happened, the reverse occurred. You know, that, that when, the, when, the, when they went to kill the Jews, instead they found themselves on the receiving end. This is the same thing that happened here. 
These people, these enemies, had hoped to dishearten the Jews. They'd hoped to discourage them and make their hands weak and keep them from finishing the work. In the end, who is disheartened? The enemy. Why? Because of God. Because of what he had done for his people. They saw once again the amazing hand of God on display. And once again, Nehemiah takes no credit for himself, but gives it solely to the Lord. And this act, this continuing act of giving glory to God, will continue to prolong his usefulness to God. When those who do great things for God exalt themselves over God, they will find a rude awakening. I reference you back, I'm not going to tell the story again because I just told it, of the story of Moses and Aaron on the mountain, or on the, in the desert that day. Shall we bring water from this rock? What were they doing? They were exalting themselves in the place of God. I had a pastor who used to tell me all the time, God does not take the stealing of his glory lightly. The minute you and I think we don't need God, or think, hey, we got this, is the minute we fail. Many a spiritual leader has lost his usefulness for God because he's quit trusting in God. Many a church has died or become so stagnant they might as well have died because they're dependent on programs, on, well, that's just the way we do things, and they've quit depending on the Lord. We must stay humble before the Lord and dependent on his grace and strength. And no matter what he may allow us to accomplish, it's all due to him. God can use you to do amazing, incredible things. And you may hear in your lifetime, oh, thank you, you did this, and it was such a blessing. You did that, and you did this, and, you did, and that's okay, right? It's, 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 it's right and well for us to thank the people that God has used in our lives, but never forget that it's by the grace and the mercy of God that you're allowed to do those things. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to start right here, okay? And it goes out. God gave his people victory over their enemies, and he saw them through. But just because that outward threat is dealt a blow doesn't mean it's gone forever. What do you see at the end of the chapter? Well, you see here the underground sympathy that's going on for the enemies of Israel. Do you realize that just because you can't see the enemy doesn't mean he's not there? In fact, it is often the case that when Satan is in plain sight... He's easier to repel. Though the Jews, by God's hand, have won a great battle, the war is not over. And we begin to learn that within Judah, there is sympathy that is garnered for Tobiah. Tobiah is connected by marriage to more than one person within the Jews. In fact... His daughter-in-law's father, who is mentioned there, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, he worked on two sections of the wall that was listed in chapter 3. And once again, here's something that, that crops its ugly head up. 
When the people of Israel are prepared to go into the promised land, what is one of the major things God tells them not to do? Don't intermarry with the people of the land. Why? They're going to turn your hearts away to serve idols. Guess what? The returning Jews intermarried with people in the land. And it's causing issues. Does that surprise us? The consequences of God are always going to be there. The things God tells us not to do don't have an expiration date. The higher-ups, so to speak, of Jewish society, it says here they were pledged to Tobiah. They were tied to him. And so they began to undertake his cause. It says in verse 19, they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Perhaps these ones had entered into business deals even with Tobiah at some point and hoped to show Nehemiah, hey, you know, he's really not that bad. You know, you can imagine, right? The ones who who had family married to him. Look, I mean, he's an in-law, but he's not that bad, right? Yet, Tobiah had already revealed his character. And we see that they're saying, trying to say good things about him, and they're reporting things what Nehemiah says back to Tobiah. It's a mess. But Nehemiah would not be swayed, and would not give in to one of such baseless character. The culture of Judah needed to be built on God's word, not on man's word. They needed to follow what God has said, and not give heed to the words of the enemy whom they had allowed into their lives. And the wall is rebuilt, and we give all praise and glory to God as Nehemiah does here. But now the work of reviving God's people, and not just God's city, can begin in earnest. A leader's character is built, refined, and exemplified in his godly handling of personal attacks. Nehemiah fell under some incredible attacks as God's appointed leader. He led his people through incredible feats and to incredible heights but not without great burden on himself. And if you would stand for God, you too will face resistance. And oh, how sad it is when those who claim to be God's own engage in the misspreading of information or contribute to personal attacks. I mean, that really is kind of the saddest thing at the end of this chapter. We see people who are supposed to be servants of God saying good things about the one who is the declared enemy of God. And when you face the enemy's attacks, where will you trust? Where will you place your trust? If you trust in your own devices or your own schemes, or if you place your faith in man's wisdom, you're going to falter and you're going to fail. You will have nothing to refute the enemy with, with the truth of God will not be present. But if our trust is in the Lord and our life is built on doing his will, then you and I will find ultimate And true strength in him. So let us trust God to take care of the details. And let us go forward in utmost confidence and concern for his incredible glory. No matter what comes our way, we can face these things in the power of God and with his help. Lord, thanks for the time we've had together to look at your word. Thank you for showing us that we can walk through hard times in our lives with your help. Thank you for not abandoning us to ourselves or leaving us to figure these things out on our own, but giving us your word. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to, like Nehemiah, 
trust you above all else. Give you the honor and the glory and the praise. Give your word the heed and importance of the most important places in our lives. And help us truly to leave your things with you and continue to trust and obey and do the things you called us to do. Where we pray that you would raise up in Beaverton Baptist Church those who would stand for the things of God, those who would make a difference in the lives of those around them, those who would make disciples of Jesus Christ, and those who would trust you above all else. May this place be a light in a dark world for the gospel. We ask now that you would give us a wonderful week. May we walk out of this place refreshed, spiritually recharged, and ready to go about our lives. May we spend time with you this week that we may grow in you. In your name we pray. Amen.